0: This morning, I invite you to turn with me in your copy of the Holy Scriptures to the New Testament book of Colossians, Colossians 2, verses 8 through 15. This morning, this is a text that I preached as an occasional message just a few years ago, but a text that we will now revisit as we make our way through the Apostle Paul's epistle to the Colossian believers. For all of human history, philosophy has sought to answer life's most important questions. Questions like, who am I? And where did I come from? And why am I here? Questions like, who is God? And where did God come from? Questions like, what is reality? What is truth? What will happen when I die? But unfortunately, without the special revelation of God's word, all of those questions can only be answered with human speculation, which really ultimately leaves us without an answer. But I'd like to cite for you this morning as we begin from some of the ancient philosophers who sought to answer the great questions of man. It was in the 5th century B.C., The pre Socratic Greek philosopher Protagoras asserted the homo mensura, or the man measure theory, the man measure theory, which states that man is the measure of all things. Protagoras then argued that if a man was the measure of all things, then every man's opinion is true. Whatever seems true to a man is true for that man because, after all, he is the measure of all things. He's the measure of truth. And while that, of course, is not only an ancient philosophy, it's, it's now a modern philosophy that many adopt, the man-measure theory. In the 19th century, German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche proclaimed that God was dead, But he could not live with the implications of his own philosophy. For Nietzsche to be consistent, he needed to become his own Superman, his own God. For after all, if God is dead, that leaves us alone and responsible. But his views were overwhelming even for himself. He couldn't handle the horror of being responsible for everything alive. In the impossibility of a situation, madness became his only possible freedom from the overbearing responsibility, so in despair he cried, alas, grant me madness. And tragically, Nietzsche's wish was granted and he spent the last 11 years of his life insane. In the 20th century, French existentialist Jean-Paul Sartre wrote a novel called Nausea. In his novel the main character says this, everything is born without reason, goes on living in weakness, and dies by accident. Satra believed that we are a heap of existences, uncomfortable, embarrassed at ourselves. We haven't the slightest reasons to be here. And then most recently in the 21st century, that's us today, The physicist Stephen Hawking, who died in March of 2018, he said this in his book, The Grand Design. He said, spontaneous creation is the reason there is something rather than nothing. Why the universe exists. Why we exist. He said, God is the name, God is the name that people give to the reason we are here. But I think the reason is the laws of physics rather than someone with whom one can have a personal relationship. And so it is from philosophers like Socrates and, and Plato to Spinoza and John Locke and Im- Immanuel Kant, brilliant minds have postulated all sorts of theories to answer and explain life's mysteries. And even now, Postmodern man makes the same attempt. We try, but nothing satisfies our questions. And it reminds me of Romans chapter number one, verses 21 and 22. They became futile in their thoughts, in their speculations, in their imaginations, in their philosophies. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. But this morning I submit to you that Colossians 2 verses 8 through 15, I've written this there at the top of your notes, explains the insufficiency of philosophy compared to the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. Philosophy might ask some of the right questions. In fact, I think philosophy does ask important questions, but Jesus Christ is the only answer. And so from our scripture text this morning, I've prepared a message. You've heard it before. A message titled Complete in Christ. Let me pray. God in heaven, we thank you for your amazing love that redeemed us in our sin. And really gives us the explanation and the answer to all of life's questions. I pray, God, that as we go to the scripture that you will give us a biblical worldview grounded in this gospel truth rather than the wisdom of man. So we commit our study to you now in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. A boy was about to go on his first date and he was nervous, of course, to be sure as to what he should talk about. So he asked his father for advice. And his father told him, my son, there are three subjects that always work when you're on a date. They are food Family and philosophy. Remember this story? (laughs) This is a good one. The boy picked up his date and went to the local ice cream shop. And with ice cream sodas now in front of them, they stared at each other for a long time. Neither one speaking. And as the boy's nervousness built up, he, he remembered his father's advice and chose the first of the three topics. The topic of food. And so he asked his date, he asked the girl, Susie, do you like potato pancakes? To which she answered no. And after a few more uncomfortable minutes, the boy thought of his father's second suggested subject of of family. And so he asked his date, Susie, do you have a brother? To which she answered no. And some more uncomfortable moments passed. And finally the the boy had to to play his last card, he, he thought of his father's advice. There was food and family. They didn't work. Only philosophy was left. And so he asked his date, Susie, if you had a brother, would he like potato pancakes? <laughs> And, of course, that was a first and last date, I suppose, for, for the boy. But let me offer you this. Philosophy is insufficient for solutions. Philosophy is insufficient. Colossians 2, verse number 8, Beware, lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. And all through the pages of the New Testament, we are warned of danger. We are told to beware. In Matthew 7, Jesus warned us to beware of false teachers. In Philippians 3, Paul warned us to beware of evil workers. Here in Colossians 2, the Bible tells us to beware that no one cheats you or literally takes you captive or kidnaps you or plunders you through philosophy. It means to carry off as, as spoil or, or bounty of, of war. In this case, we're we're not talking about physical assault or physical abduction, but of spiritual war that is waged against the truth. I might paraphrase it like this, beware, beware that you don't become a POW, a prisoner of war in the battle for truth. And the Colossians were in danger of becoming captive to, to philosophy, two philosophies specifically. They are impressive at first, but, but uh, they're deceptive and they're ultimately insufficient. The first would be the traditions of man, the traditions of, of men or man. If you study the history of philosophy, you, you find that most philosophers built upon the work of previous philosophers, either refining their work or refuting their, their work, and eventually the pile of ideas gets so complex that it collapses under its own weight. And this was certainly the case for first century Judaism. The, the Jewish leaders in, in Judaism, the teachers, had taught that the, the, their customs and their rituals and their teachings were more important than even the word of God, They were unable to distinguish the scripture from their traditions, and Jesus even had an exchange with the scribes and the Pharisees on this very theme in Mark 7, saying, you reject the commandments of God so that you may keep your traditions, Matthew 7, verse number 9. Now, don't misunderstand me to suggest that tradition is unimportant. Tradition can serve to preserve memories and tradition can retain valued practices and tradition is profitable in that it can be a point of instruction for the next generation and if it wasn't for tradition your grandma's secret recipe might be lost to history. But whether intentional or unintentional we can develop traditions that supersede the truth. And human traditions can perpetuate error. For example, in the the judicial system of our country, judges often make rulings based on precedent or tradition. And lawyers and judges will always cite previous cases to leverage a current decision. But what if that previous precedent or what if that previous tradition was wrong, then we're stuck in a rut of wrong and all future rulings will be wrong because they're based on precedent and not principle. We do the very same thing in, in churches. We might argue, well, we've never done it that way before or we've always done it that way before the precedent or the, the tradition, okay, but maybe, maybe it could be done differently. Is it possible that it could actually be done better than before? The traditions of men are insufficient in themselves, and the Colossian church needed a sacred cow killer, they needed a tradition killer. Because there were those asserting the traditions of men as the answers to life's questions. There was a second insufficient philosophy that was prevalent in the Colossian church. And it's this, letter B. It was the principles of the world. The principles of the world. Now my new King James and the NIV reads the basic principles of the world. Here I'm looking at Colossians 2 verse number 8. The King James, the rudiments of the world. The new American standard you may be carrying, the elementary principles of the world, or the ESV, the elemental spirits of the world. And Paul is describing the thinking or the ideas of the world system as childish or silly. And to abandon the truth, biblical truth, for the emptiness of the world's ideas would be like returning to kindergarten after you've earned a graduate degree. Beware of, of, of returning back to those principles. But so often we do this very thing. First thing in the morning, instead of gaining wisdom from the scripture to guide us for the day, where do we go? We go to our phones, we go to social media, we turn on the news, we read the paper. Why do we think that those voices can contribute anything to our biblical worldview while asserting a godless world system? And then we're deceived by those principles, those world philosophies. On the back of your notes, I've, I've listed 10 principles or philosophies of the world. I'll give these to you in rapid succession. The first would be, number one, narcissism. Narcissism, and I've written this. Narcissist was a young man in Greek mythology that fell in love with his own reflection in a pool of water. And narcissism is the, the loving of and the living for self. I make decisions by what is best for me because life is about me. And I think the best illustration of narcissism in the, in the modern age is, is the selfie, right? If I had my phone here and I would take a selfie of myself. That is so narcissistic. But that's in fact what we do. It's the antithesis of the gospel. Jesus called us to deny ourselves. How about this one? Number two pluralism. Pluralism teaches that nothing is invalid. Every system of thought is legitimate. We should embrace everything as equally true and a pluralistic society is one that endorses opposing positions as equally valid. But Jesus said I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's pretty exclusive. How about hedonism? Number three, hedonism. The pursuit of my pleasure becomes the meaning of my existence. And a hedonist would argue if it feels good, then do it. It's summed up with the idea that, that we should eat, drink, and be merry. For tomorrow we might die. But know that tomorrow your soul will be, may be required of, of you. And that's hedonism. Number four, secularism. Secularism separates the sacred from society. It removes God from society, and sacred things belong only in church. God, scripture, prayer, are not welcome in society. I do my religious thing on Sunday, and then I live like the world for the rest of, of the week. That's secularism. Materialism. Number five, we, we would understand this, that what counts is what one owns. and Where he lives, what he wears, where he plays or what he drives and we live to gain things. Of course, this is a huge problem for us in the modern West because of the, the affluence that we all enjoy. Materialism. There's Number six, existentialism. Existentialism teaches that truth is found in the, the experience of my existence. I cannot find truth outside of my own existence. There's no truth that I can know outside of myself. Reason is absurd. Of course, on the other extreme is empiricism. and uh, Empiricism is, is that all knowledge is, is only through the observation of that thing. If I can't observe it outside of myself, if I can't uh, experience it, then I can't prove it. Of course, we know this is the scientific method, but faith is what is unseen. It's said to be foolish by the empiricists. There is number eight, rationalism. In this philosophy, this worldview, this principle of the world, reason is the ultimate criterion for truth. Man's reason is the reference point for truth. If human logic can't explain it, then, then I reject it. But the problem with that is relativism. Number nine, knowledge and truth and morality, they're not absolute. Even if you use the, the scientific method of empiricism, even if you can explain it logically with rationalism, Truth does not exist and can change in relation to one's own context. And then we have number 10, pragmatism. The validity of any theory is established by the success of its application. If it works, it must be right. And, and folks, you're familiar with these philosophies. You're familiar with these basic principles of the world, but they are, they are contrary to the gospel to the Bible, and to the wisdom of God. Romans 12 tells us not to be conformed to this worldliness, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And I would say to you, beware. Beware, for God said, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world. Beware that you aren't duped by the paradigm of our culture, for it is insufficient for solutions because it is not according to Christ. Colossians 2, verse number 8. Look at verse number 9. For in him, that's in Christ, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, in his incarnation. And you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. So Paul is presenting a contrast here. The insufficiency of philosophy, verse number 9, with the sufficiency of Christ, in verse number 8, the sufficiency of Christ in verses 9 and 10, which would be number 2 in your notes. Christ is sufficient. And he's sufficient for salvation. Now, the, the letter to the Colossians is what we call an occasional letter. Paul wrote this letter to this church on a, an occasion when the believers in this local assembly in the city of Colossae were confronted with specific issues. And primarily it was a mixture of pagan philosophy and Jewish legalism that had invaded their thinking. As you read now, as we read here verses 11 and 12, it appears that some of the false teachers were demanding something other than Christ for salvation. Look at verses 11 and 12. In him, this is in Christ, the one who who embodies the fullness of the Godhead, the one in whom we are complete, the one who is the head of all principalities and powers, verses 9 and 10. In this one, in him, in Christ, you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith and the working of God who raised him from the dead. And Paul's argument here is letter A, Christ offers complete salvation, Now we're well aware that every Jewish boy was circumcised on the eighth day after his birth. It was a sign that he belonged to the covenant nation of Israel. It was a demonstration that he was born in sin and needed cleansing. It it symbolically illustrated the desperate need that man has for the cleansing of his heart. But in Romans chapter 2, Paul wrote of the true circumcision. He said, he is a Jew who is one inwardly. Circumcision is that which is of the heart's. And one of the points of, of dispute in, the, uh, in the, the days of the New Testament was the, if the physical rite of circumcision was necessary for salvation, and Paul is saying, no, it's not necessary because we have been circumcised with a circumcision not made with hands. It's, it's the removal of the body of flesh or the sinful human nature. We've been cleansed from that sinfulness. We've been given a new nature created in righteousness, I can say Romans 6, verse number 6 that says that salvation, our old self was crucified with him that our body of sin might be done away with, cut away, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. And, And here was the occasion for the writing of this letter. Jesus Christ offers complete salvation. Jesus Christ alone Pagan philosophy or Jewish tradition and legalism is not necessary. Verse 13, And you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, Gentiles, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all your trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Letter B, Jesus Christ offers complete forgiveness. Forgiveness. Now, let me slow down a moment, have you look at the scripture text. In verses 11 and 12, look there, Paul's emphasizing that salvation is complete apart from any religious ritual, namely circumcision. In verses 13 and 14, Paul's emphasizing that forgiveness is complete apart from any human work. And Paul is addressing you, verse 13a. You, that is the Gentile Colossians, he's describing them as being outside of the covenant because they were uncircumcised. They weren't Jews, they weren't part of Judaism. In fact, turn back just a few pages to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 2, just a few pages back. Hold, hold your place in Colossians 2. Turn back to Ephesians 2. Look with me at verses 11 and And following, therefore remember that you, in this case it's not the Colossians, it's the Ephesians. Therefore remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by what is called circumcision. So the Jews call you uncircumcised. Verse 12, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens, from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world, you were lost Gentiles, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were afar off, you Gentiles who were once uncircumcised, you Gentiles who were, who were outside of the, the commonwealth of Israel and the covenants of promise, verse 13, have been brought near by the blood of of the cross. You see the Gentiles were in a much worse state than even an unbelieving Jew for an unbelieving Jew was still part of that community that possessed the law of God. So also we too as Gentiles are described here as having no hope apart from God in the world. However the story continues because God is rich in mercy. Look you're in Ephesians 2 still. Look up to verse number 4. Ephesians 2 verse 4, but God who is rich in mercy because of his great love, his amazing love, we just heard of this, with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ by grace. You have been saved and raised us up together, made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Jesus. Folks, Jesus Christ offers complete forgiveness to the Jew and to the Gentile. I know I'm rehearsing gospel truth that that you know and you love, but it it bears our hearing again. The psalmist wrote, if you, Lord, should mark our iniquities, if you should measure our sin, if you should count our our trespasses, O oh Lord, if you should mark our iniquities, O oh Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you. Proverbs says, Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. And I am here to tell you this morning, we're we're nearly out of time, but I'm here to tell you that Jesus Christ offers you complete forgiveness of sin. What are some characteristics of God's forgiveness? Number one. Number 1 it is complete. It's not partial. He's faithful and just to forgive us all of our sin. It's complete, it's not partial. Number 2 it's granted. It's not earned. Being justified freely. Romans 3:24 says that is without any cost by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. It is granted, not earned. Number 3 it is certain, not conditional. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. No strings attached. In our wicked, dirty, sinful state Jesus died and his forgiveness is certain because of his promises. Verse number 14, we're nearly done. Having wiped out the handwriting of the requirements that was against us which was contrary to us, he has taken it out of the way having nailed it to the cross. Ancient documents were commonly written on on papyrus which was a a paper-like material made from a form of the bulrush plant, or written on vellum, which was animal hides and skins, but the ink that was used in ancient times had no acid in it, and consequently didn't soak into the papyrus or into the vellum, so the ink remained on the surface, and the ink could be wiped off. The ink could be scraped or scratched off if a scribe wanted to reuse that material. And what Paul is saying here in verse 14 is that God has wiped off our certificate of debts. He's wiped it clean and he's nailed it to the cross. Not a trace of it remains to be held against us. Our forgiveness is complete. Verse 15, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. Jesus Christ offers complete victory. It's like the triumphant Roman general parading his defeated captives through the streets of of Rome. Christ's victory on the cross as he died and then rose again. It halted the demons in their attempts to stop his redemptive work. It stripped Satan of his power in what philosophy could never do. Jesus Christ did. And there's complete victory. Folks, philosophy is insufficient. Give it up. The cross is sufficient. And for that reason, the Apostle Paul said, may it never be that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God in heaven, thank you so much for the victory that Jesus Christ accomplished in his death and resurrection. And God, we understand that we simply need to call on the name of the Lord to be saved, to exercise faith and trust in the death and resurrection of Jesus, to find forgiveness of sin and everlasting life. I pray for those that might be under the sound of my voice this morning that, that are not trusting in the sufficiency of Christ alone. I pray, God, that you would strengthen our conviction And our appreciation for these things, I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.